This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Microgreens. You've heard about them, but have you gotten to know these healthy little bundles of fun? Hamama Grow Kits introduces you to a variety of microgreens that are packed with nutrients and easy for anyone to grow in just three simple steps. No dirt or sunlight necessary. Before you know it, you'll be harvesting these mighty little bursts of flavor and adding them to salads, smoothies, or your favorite recipes. Learn more at hamama.com. Use code word GROW and get $10 off your first order. Hamama, making serious nutrition seriously easy. From America's farm-to-fork capital in Sacramento, I'm Amber Stott, chief food genius and founder of the Food Literacy Center, a nonprofit that inspires kids to eat their veggies and understand why. Raising Kale will chronicle the stories of food thought leaders that include chefs, farmers, doctors, leading experts, connecting them back to the communities that are building resilience around a fractured food system. Today, our food is linked to obesity, climate change, workers' rights, and so much more. It's time we understand the story behind the food we eat and the impact our food choices have on our health, the environment, and our economy. It's time to start raising kale. The power of that moment where someone who might have been in prison many years of their life suddenly, you know, miraculously standing next to the President of the United States and, and giving that President instructions on how to do the task. To me, that's the power of food and this example of, you know, the first can follow and the last can lead. There are currently an estimated 42 million Americans who are food insecure or hungry, according to Feeding America. Of those, 13 million are children. What is the number one cause of hunger? It's not a lack of food. It's a lack of jobs or jobs that don't pay enough. It's about money. Hunger solutions have historically been food distributions, not job creation. In 1989, a new model came on the scene, one focused on working with those who are hungry to create jobs and reverse hunger. Rather than relying solely on donations of food and cash, why not build a nonprofit that generated its own revenue stream to create jobs for those once considered unemployable? Our earlier episode about Kitchens for Good is one example of this model. In order to truly end hunger, we have to overturn the traditional model of food distribution and attack the problem at its source. My next guest made a career of doing this very thing. He started D.C. Central Kitchen in 1989 to work with formerly incarcerated and homeless Americans to create jobs and feed others. He served there for 24 years and has since worked to tackle issues of food contracts in government institutions, senior hunger, national food policy, uplifting the nonprofit sector, and so much more. 
This episode goes out to all the OG kale raisers who paved the way for this work that this podcast celebrates today, getting into good trouble using food as a tool for change. There are 1.5 million charities registered in the U.S. 21,319 of them work on food and agriculture programs. The sector is not for the faint of heart, yet there are those with a fire burning in their belly that are called to this work. They stay for the long haul through the hard times. They innovate. They endure. Robert Egger is an original nonprofit kale raiser. He has started multiple nonprofits in his career, including D.C. Central Kitchen and L.A. Kitchen. His work is responsible for feeding seniors, giving jobs to the homeless, and training the formerly incarcerated, all in an effort to improve our food system. I'm proud to welcome him to our show. Welcome, Robert Egger. Hello. Hey, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming on. So I want it's to. It's an honor. <laughs> I want to start by talking about your background. You've started two nonprofits. Starting one is hard, and you ran DC Central Kitchen for 24 years. It's still going strong. LA Kitchen closed two years ago. It takes a lot of fearless optimism to do what you've done. So, can you tell me about the missions of these nonprofits and what motivated you to do this work? Well, sure. I mean, actually, it's strange. I've actually started, I think, four nonprofits at this stage with the Campus Kitchen Project and also another uh, advocacy organization called C4, which I'm sure we'll get to. But, you know, I came up in the in the 60s where there was this huge inspirational wave of people who were liberators. You know, they weren't satisfied with merely uh, addressing the problem. I mean, you know, you know, Dr. King didn't talk about let's make the back of the bus more comfy. It's this idea of, like, let's ban the concept of separate, you know, uh, uh, seats. So there was an element of, you know, whatever I wanted to do, it was going to be um, wrapped up in liberation of some sort. Uh, I ran nightclubs for a long time because I was fascinated by the power of music and theater and comedy to get people to hear things that they might be afraid if a politician said them or an activist, they could hear a comedian. Uh, but then I, I, I really discovered the power of food, and that's really where my career took a different turn. And for people that aren't familiar with D.C. Central Kitchen and L.A. Kitchen and those models, can you break it down real simplified uh, to help people understand the work that you were doing? Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, now just so you know, I was a volunteer who went out to serve people one night, uh, and we served with the purchase at one of the most expensive stores in Washington, D.C. at the time. And we served people who were standing outside in the rain from the warmth of a truck. And I looked at this system, and I've said this many times, but what was revealed to me that night was kind of the, the charity, for all its historic nature, is still built upon the redemption of the giver when it should be for a receiver. So I naively, innocently, lovingly came back with a little business plan. Again, I was running nightclubs, and I said, look, I work in an industry in which a ton of food is thrown away every night, but they also have jobs. Why don't you collect that food, bring it to a central kitchen, start a cooking school so that men and women who are homeless or on the streets or addicts or are out of prison can be part of the solution, not charity. That way you can feed more people better food for less money while you also shorten the line by the very way you serve it. Everybody wins. Everybody benefits. Now, I was rebuffed and told that wouldn't work, and so – I started the D.C. Central Kitchen in 1988 because no one else would. I mean, I, I literally tried to give this idea to multiple food charities, and people just 
told me that, you know, it was it was illegal for restaurants to donate food, which it never has been, or I think more insidious, particularly coming from charities, that I was naive to think that men and women who were homeless could get a job or hold a job, or that restaurants would hire out of prison or addicts, which, you know, as a sidebar, is a little bit of a of a joke, because anybody who's worked in restaurants knows that restaurant kitchens are and have always been the island of misfit toys. Absolutely. So again, the idea is really simple. Take food that was thrown away, kitchens that are underutilized, men and women who are undervalued, volunteers who want to make something powerful happen, restaurants that not only have food they donate, but chefs who would help teach and who had jobs, and kind of develop this new formula. I was happy to have originated the idea, but that has led to uh, hundreds of different programs around the country and around the world now developing their own version of a pretty kitchen. And that's a huge impact in shifting our broken food system, to be able to turn the model on its head, bring folks who were once on the receiving line and have them making money to prepare the meals. It's quite innovative. Well, you know, it's been an interesting journey. And, and I really want to mention something that I try and touch on because you asked earlier about you know, starting one profit, nonprofit or two or however, and the audacity. But, you know, I'm also a white dude in America, and that gave me um, a, an incredible sense of confidence that I could just do this. Again, no one had ever done it, but that didn't stop me. Uh, but that has a lot to do. I'm very much uh, a, a, a benefited from time and place. I mean, here we were in the nation's capital at the birth of the, the uh, cable television and the internet, and with that came the explosion of the food culture and the celebrity chef, and there I was. So I look at food not as, again, gas for the body, but kind of that metaphorical magnet that draws people in because, you know, you go to the party, everybody, I want to be in the kitchen, and the kitchen's where the party's, the party within the party. So I just used our kitchens uh, in that same idea. It's like I want it to be the place where everybody wants to come. Absolutely. There's a lot of abundance in food and it attracts um, people in a way that some other causes may struggle. Well, and, you know, that's what I think is our bigger responsibility. I've over the years had to and, you know, again, let's put this word out there because it, it's kind of verboten in the nonprofit sector. But we compete and I've competed with other nonprofits. And sadly, for those of us who are really trying to pull people deeper into the discussion of the role of food, sometimes we have to compete with people who just want to talk about how many pounds of food they're moving. And it can be very frustrating because, again, you know, what, what, what I think is the imperative is that, uh, you know, we move as fast as we can away from these, these really corrosive metrics of impact that says, I move this many pounds or tons of food or fed this many people it is always going to be right and just to make people dependent upon you day in and day out to come in and self-identify as poor and stand in line for a meal. In my opinion, you're part of the problem. You use the term food democracy uh, often. What's your approach in bringing together a lot of groups that are often left out of the conversation and making them part of the solution? Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, you know, the term, which I really dig, you know, um, food democracy, I mean, people waited five hours to vote. And so similarly, think about that, people waiting hours in line at a food pantry um, to get a meal. To me, that's wrapped up in the same system. And, and to a certain extent, what I'm trying to do is, is see past food as just gas for the body. How can food be a liberating tool? 
And again, you know, as you mentioned in your intro, I've done a lot of work, but you know, understandably, when people look at what I do, they immediately think, oh, well, when he talks about liberating, he's talking about people who are hungry or people who are unemployed. But no, 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 no. I'm, I've always been intrigued in the kitchens I've run how you could develop kind of a side-by-side approach. So, for example, in Washington, D.C., where I started the D.C. Kitchen, um, we had movie stars come to volunteer. But what I really wanted to do was, was flip the script on the historic model where, you know, somebody comes and serves the poor person across the table from them the Thanksgiving meal or whatever, you know. I wanted to set up a thing where, like, look, if we're going to solve a problem, we're going to have to do it as a, a, as a, a combined population. So our model is always side by side. So, again, the president of the United States standing next to someone who might have been in prison, might have been an addict, might have been uh, – might be an elder, might be a kid doing service. But they were they were shared citizens of a, of a shared city, and that was really I thought one example of this idea. We had Barack Obama, President Obama, President Clinton, both incredibly intelligent men. Yet you put them in a kitchen, and sometimes they're they're all thumbs. And the power of that moment where someone who might have been in prison many years of their life suddenly, you know, miraculously standing next to the president of the United States and and giving that. That, that president instructions on how to do the task. To me, that's the power of food and this example of, you know, the first can follow and the last can lead. We all have a role. We all have a gift. You know, I'm not unique. I'm just the one you see more than others, but there are many other people like this, and this is something that every city can do because the model was built on things that exist everywhere. You know, again, wasted food, men and women who want jobs, chefs who have, uh, you know, food. And that's a big part of my formula is you only utilize that are available and, and for the most part free in every city. So the daring wasn't the, it was the formula more than anything else. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And you, you have helped others to kind of think about this model or pieces of this model. You serve on a lot of nonprofit boards um, and you, in fact, have started giving your services away to other nonprofit leaders and sort of offered to step aside? You know, I tell you, man, I really um, fell on my sword, for lack of a better word. I went out to Los Angeles because, A, I grew up here, but I became fixated on um, the inevitable and, and frightening level of senior poverty that is already here, just underreported, but that's really going to explode as the baby boomers kind of arrive. In fact, this morning, 10,000 people turn 70, and tomorrow morning, 10,000 people are going to turn 70, and that's going to go on for a decade, and there's already pronounced hunger. So what does that look like? So I really wanted to put together an incredibly you know, daring and innovative model that would focus on plant-forward meals, which, again, is not vegan or vegetarian. It's really more meat as part of the meal, not the center of the plate, and that's based really more on affordability. You know, again, the, the my model has always been how do you feed more people better food for less money. So I wanted to do plant forward. I really wanted to be able to focus um, heavily on kind of the international palate uh, because if you're going to take uh, meat out of the center of the plate, I wanted to deeply explore in Los Angeles and, frankly, writ, you know, California writ large, so many amazing immigrant flavor profiles and, and culinary traditions it could really add so much dynamic flavor. Um, I really wanted to explore food as medicine, 
and the role that food could play in an elder's um, ongoing ability to stay productive and live independently. So I came roaring into the town where I was raised saying, you know, look, I've returned after 40 years in Washington, and I'm here to create a model that will serve what is one of the largest concentrations of elders in America. And I'm going to base it on kind of a double-sided model. One will be a nonprofit that will take donated fruits and vegetables primarily, train younger men and women aging out of foster care aligned with elders coming home from prison, this intergenerational training model, which was in in and of itself really unique. And while they're learning, they produce thousands of really beautiful, healthy meals for elders and a variety of other recipients. The for-profit side, which was really, I had hoped, would be the economic backbone of the LA Kitchen, was um, getting contracts to do senior meals via the Department of Aging. Every town has a Department of Aging that should should be looking at, you know, every which way for a social enterprise partner that will say, in effect, not only will I give you a great price on healthier meals, but I'll reinvest all your profit that I make into a nonprofit that will train more people, produce meals, other meals, in effect giving them two-for-one meals. But this is where I bumped into where many people um, who aspire to um, contribute to a new food system bump, which is corporate food and the insidious grasp that they have on city, state, or even federal contracts for food. Right, because they, you were trying to do something unique, different, trying to change the plate even, and they, they wouldn't have it. They weren't interested. I knew what I was doing. In other words, I wasn't naive. I knew, A, that sadly um, our, our society has so focused on childhood hunger, they virtually neglected to the point of almost criminal ne- neglect um, this issue of senior poverty. Elders are going to be plagued by, by chronic um, diet-related illnesses that will not kill them outright, but will take so much money out of the system. But And I also knew, um, back to this point of corporate food, and I was um, the chair of the Mayor's Commission on Nutrition in Washington, D.C., and there came a moment where New York State had sued the multinational food company Sodexo and literally said out loud, we're suing you because you didn't give us our fair share of the kickback money that you get. And, and, you know, immediately, like many advocates, I was like, what? And what you start to look at, and, and we'll do this very quick, but food companies, and again, this is Aramark, Sodexo, Compass, they're not bad companies, but what they'll do is they will then go to the big manufacturers like Kraft or General Mills you know, or whatever, and say, you know, we want to buy this much food, but because we're buying so much, we want a discount. And what they started doing is go to school districts. Hey, man, your city council or your um, uh, Department of Education is cutting your budget. How about if you give us this contract, we'll give you a bit of our um, aggregate purchasing kickbacks, you know, the, the, the rebates we get. Mm-hmm. And that began kind of what is become the norm for multiple agencies, whether it's prison, schools, hospitals, Department of Aging, they've become reliant on this kind of kickback money, this under-the-table money that commissioners like myself, you know, when you go in, you're trying to compete based on the price per meal. And no one ever says out loud is, great, your price per meal is amazing. How much money are you going to slip us under the table? I spend a lot of time now 
not only sharing knowledge, but also talking about some of the policy reforms that have to happen at the local level so that small local farms, local food businesses can thrive via access to these contracts. And how can those policies help small farmers compete and small businesses compete in the space? Well, you know, let's talk about farmers for a second. The mayor of Albuquerque did a study on food contracts here in New Mexico. And what he discovered is, and this is true in every state, he discovered that here in New Mexico, $128 million a year go to food contracts, yet only 11% of that money went to a New Mexico-based business. Out of the state, never came back because it was being filtered into a multinational company that was you know, exporting profit to satisfy shareholders. Interesting enough, at the same time, here and just like there is in Sacramento and every place you go, there's a very dynamic um, farmer's market system. Yet, for most of those small farmers, there's not a next step beyond the farmer's market. You know, one, two, five farmer's markets on the weekend sell their product, you know, find a place to donate it if they, if, if they don't sell at all. But that's a tough living for many of them. So the question becomes, what's the next step? And you look at, at these contracts. You know, you can pass things, and I think the first great step is a good food purchasing act, but they need to be mandated. These policies, are they voluntary? Yeah, yeah, most of these, some of them are voluntary, and they need to be mandatory. Unless these are mandated, they're kind of empty. So that's one thing. But secondly, um, most contracts are based on low bid, which means whoever bids the cheapest amount per meal wins the contract. Now, that kind of model means no one's going to be able to support a local farmer. No one's going to pay a living wage. And again, you're going to end up with processed food. So this shift from low bid to best value is a, is, a, is a giant leap forward. And when I was in Los Angeles, I worked with the uh, supervisors there, and anybody wants to look up, they created the very first kind of registration system for social enterprise businesses like LA Kitchen that said, if I get this contract, I'm going to pay this wage, I'm going to provide benefits, I'm going to buy local so that local taxpayers can start to see the impact. They're going to start to understand, wow, cheap food or low-bid contracts actually end up costing us a ton of money because we end up having to pay for the charity that the workers have to go to. We have to pay the health care costs for the kids now who are obese or have childhood diabetes. You know, these are the kind of things that are, are make food really expensive. One of my favorite examples of why this sucks so much is a couple of years ago, there was a great kerfuffle because it was discovered that um, the fruit cups that were being served in schools contained California fruit. That fruit was shipped to China, where it was then put into chopped and put into cups and then shipped back. And that rightly made taxpayers frustrated. There's a sense of, really, this is incredible. There's nobody in California that we can buy fruit cups from that employ Californians or reinvest profit. Again, is an example of how cheap food or low bid creates a system that that literally cuts out the very businesses that would help these small towns thrive. I'm a romantic, so for me, I've always been intrigued. You know, no one wakes up when they're 20 and looks in the mirror in the morning and says, man, when I grow up, I'm going to be a boring bureaucrat that stifles innovation and shovels (laughs) bad food into people's mouths. We have to change you know, from a thousand different strategies to one overarching strategy. And that's how do we really get ultimately to the Department of Agriculture 
and really start to mandate some behavior changes in our system that really starts to prioritize, once again, local foods. Yes, our food is, is making us sick and our systems are broken. And if people are listening, you know, this stuff sounds like really hard work. How do people get involved even just a little? Maybe they have a day job. Maybe they, you know, don't know how to start a nonprofit. How can they, how can they make a difference? Well, first and foremost, every single candidate for every single office should have a food policy. And I think that's one of the things we can do is hold people accountable. No matter what smallest little corner of any city that uh, uh, a candidate wants to represent, there's old people there who are either isolated or ill who could be um, transformed potentially with a better diet or engaged in the process of producing healthier meals. Um, You know, there's an aspiring generation of young farmers who, whether it's in an urban environment in vacant lots or it's on – you know, public land, or if it's outside cities, or it's in rural communities or frontier towns. You know, no matter where you go, candidates should have a food policy. So that's one thing. Because again, as I alluded to earlier, just to reinforce, nothing's going to truly change until we really truly elect a generation of people who understand the necessity of a different food system in America. Because we're going to have to literally go in and replace um, some of the gatekeepers uh, that are holding this movement back and, and, and indenturing your generation to crippling debt um, and health care costs. Absolutely, because so, right now we have a generation that votes with their vote, um, and we see a lot of folks that are trying to vote with their fork in terms of maybe they're giving up a type of food or they're trying to buy more local, um, but we need both. They can't be separate from one another. Well, you know what, what I find fascinating, Amber, though, is what is one of, the, one of the things an older and younger generation can really find common ground on? And I think it's food policy. So I wish, if I could do anything, I would love to be involved in creating an intergenerational political alliance based on taking back the food system. Absolutely. And that's a perfect note to end on. Do you have any last... Um roll up your sleeve bits of advice for folks that want to raise some kale in their communities? Well, you know, I tell you, I'm an older dude now, and I've said, you know, I have a choice in my life. I can either cut back on meat or I can cut back on tequila. And it ain't going to be tequila. (laughs) I think all of us need to look, and particularly my generation, because we were raised in a very carnivorous America. And I think one of the best things that we can do as, as elders in our country is start to really look at our own diets first and foremost and say, you know what, I don't have to eat as much meat as I did when I was growing up where we literally got meat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So I think I wish more and more of my generation would look at their own diets and maybe question um, you know, how they can change. But also, again, look down the street and realize there's an elder. You know, why don't you and your kid go to the farmer's market, buy an extra uh, uh, you know, uh, a bag, take it down the street, or better yet, cook a meal. And walk down the street and knock on the door and have dinner with your neighbor. And it might sound simple and naive and kind of romantic, but I tell you, it's those small ripples that that create the mighty waves that wash down the walls of oppression, to quote my mentor, Robert Kennedy. Absolutely. I'll raise a fork to that, Robert. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and your passion and your vision for a better America. And right on, and thank you for your work. I'm hoping more and more people get to hear your wisdom. Well, thank you so much. And keep raising kale. Right on. Thank you for listening. 
I'm so grateful for Robert's energy to redesign hunger solutions. His work continues to shape future innovations in this field. It's radish. Please help me out by rating this podcast. If you love an episode, share it. Calling all kale raisers. We want to hear the stories of kale raisers across America. Do you use food as a tool to get into good trouble? Share your story with us by texting KALE to 73389 or by visiting us at RaisingKale.com. I'm thrilled that Food Anatomy Activities for Kids, my debut book, is now available wherever books are sold. The book has 20 food science recipes and experiments for kids. They'll learn by rolling up their sleeves and heading to the kitchen. They'll learn about endothermic chemical reactions by making Italian gelato in a plastic bag. They'll learn about the growing cycle of rice plants, then compare and contrast recipes to make different types of rice. Visit our website to give one book, get one book. For a donation of $28, we'll ship you a signed copy and give one to a student at a Title I school in our program. Next on Raising Kale, you have heard rumors that school lunch is broken. But have you heard the one about how school lunch is being done right? Next week, you're going to hear a story about how school lunch is supposed to be done. You'll meet the woman running our school lunch program, which serves over 30,000 lunches a day. Lots of people say they want to reform school lunch, and Diana is actually doing it. I'll be honest, she's so innovative that her ideas blow my mind on a regular basis. She's unstoppable. I can't wait for you to hear her story. Next time on Raising Kale.